0: Today we're in week three of our series, The Walk. We're spending eleven weeks walking through the book of First John. So if you have a Bible on your lap or on your device, go ahead and get there to First John chapter two. We'll be in our vision statement is building three D relationships that our heart as a church that is over time that we would grow to be more and more devoted to Jesus, dedicated to one another, and driven to reach people. Said in another way, as a church, we want to love God, love people, and go and make disciples. We don't want to overcomplicate this thing called the Christ-following life or get derailed into the weeds, but we want to instead keep it simple and say, as a church, we want to love God, love people, and go and make disciples. We want to be uh, devoted, dedicated, and driven. The book of 1 John is all about loving God and loving others with a really strong emphasis on loving one another. It's a theme that gonna, we're going to see repeated over and over in this little book, and, and we'll see it today. We'll get a practical picture in challenging words and what it truly looks like to love God and love one another. The nature of how John writes this letter is very black and white. A book of contrasts, if you will, light and darkness, love and hate, truth and lies, loving the Father, uh, loving loving the Father, loving the world, love and fear, true teaching, false teaching. In this book, you're going to come across verses that really have no middle ground on them. A very black and white, you're in or you're out kind of thought process. And that's good for us to be challenged in that way. It's good for my heart. It's good for your heart to honestly examine our own hearts and lives and say, okay, am I truly following and trusting in the God of the Bible or just some small G God that I've kind of created in my own mind? 1 John does just that. John is very black and white with the truth. And yet, if you notice, you will see this thread of grace throughout this whole book. My heart is that if you're in Christ, if you confess Jesus as your Savior, if you're following Him as Lord of your life, that these words in 1 John would be a source of encouragement and assurance. Assurance of your salvation as well as encouragement to grow and to become more and more like Christ. So don't miss the assurance. Don't miss the encouragement. For those here or maybe you're listening on the podcast who don't know Jesus yet, you wouldn't confess that he's the Lord of your life. You're exploring maybe you're exploring the claims of Christ, but you have yet to transfer your, your trust or your faith in Jesus then the words of 1 John serve not as assurance, but as words of warning, as well as this continual invitation to meet the living God through a personal relationship through Christ. Warning and invitation. So don't miss the warning. Don't miss the invitation. The word no, you'll see it show up a lot today, but you'll see it through really There's 25 times it shows up in the book of 1 John. The word no. Because over and over, John wants us to get to the point where we know that we know that we know who Jesus is, who we are in light of that truth, and what it looks like to walk and live as a Christ follower. In the, in the verses we'll look at today, and in upcoming weeks, John will, talk, will be talking about what does the internal transformation that Jesus has done, what does that look like outwardly? We give our lives to Jesus. He comes in, gives us a new heart, new purpose, new life, gives us the Holy Spirit. And then, what does that look like outwardly? What are the external things that give evidence that Jesus did actually save us and is transforming us internally? In other words, to borrow the cliche, what does it look like to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk? Are there ways that we can examine our own lives to determine if we're truly following Christ or if we're just kind of following ourselves? A couple months ago, the Holy Spirit really convicted Heather's and, and my heart regarding how we are approaching food in our lives. In many ways, uh, food had become an idol that we would run to and that uh, ultimately God was asking us in those moments to run to Him in prayer or run to others in community or relationships. And, and by God's grace and power, we began to make some major changes to what we were eating, which then led to some changes in, in how my wife was baking and cooking. Now listen, I love what comes out of our kitchen. Uh, I love what, what my wife prepares i'm limited to about a half a dozen things when the grill gets put away i'm down to about four things of things i can do that are edible and enjoyable for the glory of god for my family my wife can just kind of dump things together and it just turns into something magical all right but with these changes the ingredients we were working with were different some of the major ones we had used in the past were no longer there and either had been replaced or kind of completely taken out so she embarks on making some muffins with these new ingredients. And they came out of the oven, and they looked amazing. And I had gone at that point without bread for a while. And so when these muffins arrived out of the oven, I'm thinking, man, these are looking so good. I broke the muffin in half, and of course I put a a slab of real butter on one side, and I took a bite. And that first taste was amazing. I mean, it was bread, the texture of a baked good. Glory to God. But then, in about roughly 1.3 seconds... Uh, my mouth began to dry out as if I was eating muffins of sand. <laughs> and I've never eaten a muffin of sand, but this is how I imagine they would taste, with a hint of carrot on top. Um, and I, I began to drink some water, and the muffins just seemed to absorb all the water that I was drinking, and, and no amount of... You, I mean, you could do your ratio of 50-50 butter muffin or 75 butter, 25 muffin. It did not remedy the muffin. It did not fix that. And um, being a good husband, I... We didn't just chuck them. Uh, We let them sit underneath the little baked good glass thing. And the next day, they were still bad. They hadn't gotten better. Like some leftovers, like soup gets better with time. Muffins do not. And there were still muffins of sand the next day. They looked okay. They smelled pretty good. But then the ingredients were not the same. They did not have have this good outcome. In our opinion, these muffins were an imposter. They were phony compared to what we were used to eating, They talked the talk, they looked the look, they did not walk the walk in our mouths. Because why? Because the internal ingredients were wrong. They were different. And John is going to to challenge us outwardly in these verses. He's going to challenge us about our obedience to God's word and our love for one another. But all of that starts internally. The ingredients of our heart, if you will, gospel changes is always inside to outside. Internal to external, inward to outward, aligning our walk with our talk. So my question to you and me is this, is Jesus Lord and King of your heart? Because if you say he is, if you claim to be a follower of Christ and you say, oh yeah, I I follow Jesus, then it should lead to an outward gospel change. It should lead to changed attitudes and actions. And today we'll be faced with two uh, outward tests that examine, do we really know The Jesus of the Bible. Is he truly king of our heart? And if we are, then to be assured of that, and if not, to be warned and invited to make him Lord and king of our life. One reason John is so black and white in this book is that he wants us to be really clear on this. He doesn't want us to think, oh yeah, we're fine, and then die and realize we're not. So he wants us to know and be assured that we're in Christ, if we are, then to be freed up, to serve him, to, to glorify him in everything. And if not, to be warned and invited to make him Lord and King of, of our lives, to surrender to him wholeheartedly. John is saying it's possible to know that you know that, that you know the God of the Bible. And knowing God doesn't just mean knowing facts about him or recognizing there is a creator in this world, but rather knowing him intimately. Many of you know my wife. You, you know many things about my wife. But I know my wife to a whole other level a level of intimacy that has been built over time through trials and successes and and good days and bad days and bad muffins and good muffins. I mean, I could write a book about her. You could read that book. You could learn a lot of things about her, but you'd still not know her to the degree that I know her as her husband. The God of the universe, he doesn't just invite you to know a lot of things about him, but to know him personally, intimately, to live life with him. Oftentimes, what I've experienced, maybe what you've seen, is that you get to know God best when you're broken, when you are desperate, when you are struggling, when you're experiencing loss, when He draws near to you and you draw near to Him. So don't miss the grace in those moments that faith in Christ is not just something that our minds think about. It's a truth that we live out that we experience through relationship, through the Holy Spirit, dwelling inside of you, convicting and leading you to the truth. Throughout this book, we get a recurring theme of three different tests, if you will, that help us to evaluate if we truly know the living God. Because if we know him, it means that, that there should be this ongoing change or growth in our outward life. The three tests that we keep seeing are a theological test. Do you know Jesus, who he is, that he's the very son of God, the one who died and rose again for you? A moral or obedience test? Are we obeying the words of Scripture? And finally, a relationship or social test? A love test, if you will. Do we love other people? In the verses we'll look at today, 3 through 11 in chapter 2, we'll see two of these tests highlighted, the obedience test and the relationship test. In a sense, again, giving us a picture of what does it look like to actually walk the talk? Verses 3 through 6 are all about the obedience test. I'll read them, and we'll pull some stuff out. In the ESV translation, they say, say this, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked." So what's the objective external test that helps us to know if we are in Christ? If we really know Jesus, it's do we keep his commandments? Because if we claim to know him, then we will keep his word. We will honor his word. If we claim to know him but but don't really care what Jesus has to say, then then we're a liar. The truth is not in us. Jesus used the analogy of fruit trees in the Gospels And in this week's community group uh, curriculum, you'll be looking at some of that. That a good tree, the internal ingredients of that tree lead to good fruit. But bad trees, the trees that might even look good on the outside, but they have this rotten core trunk, they don't produce good fruit. And so it is with our lives. If Jesus is not Lord and King of our hearts internally, if the Holy Spirit is not reigning and ruling over our lives internally, then it will lead to outward actions that in no way reflect the purity or authority of God's Word. You wouldn't expect to go up to an apple tree and find oranges underneath it. You wouldn't expect to go pick a pear off a Georgia peach tree. And so when it comes to a Christian's life, it shows that there's this massive disconnect between our hearts and our actions. If we say, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. He saved me, and I'm a Christian, and that's who I identify with. But, but then we live or we treat other people completely contrary to how actually God calls us to live. So we must ask ourselves, is our way of life matching up with what we say we believe? Is our walk in alignment with our talk? Each of our lives are producing fruit. That's not the question. The question is not if our lives are producing fruit. The question is what kind of fruit is our lives producing? Is it God-honoring, selfless, Jesus-exalting fruit? Or is it fruit that really reveals us and our selfish tendencies and our our sinful hearts. In your life, uh, is there an increased movement toward godliness, holiness, and Christ-likeness? If you're claiming that Jesus is king of your heart internally, how has he changed you outwardly? And I'm not, listen to me, I'm not talking about man-made rules. Like, I I got a haircut, he's changed me outwardly there, and I... I mean, I really cleaned this up, and I took care of that, and I'm I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your desire and your, your want to obey the words of Scripture. Is it changing it there? Now, when we're talking about an obedience test, we must remind ourselves of the gospel, that we're not saved by what we do, but what has already been done for us on the cross, that we are saved by grace through faith and not to do with our works, because if it was, we'd just brag about how awesome we are. Our obedience doesn't bring us justification. You can't obey enough to get you into a right standing with God. The Bible makes it very clear that none of us are perfect. That's why the perfect one, the only perfect one, had to lay down his life for us. Remember from last week in the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus is the one who atones for or pays for our sin, not our good works. So if I stain my shirt, I don't fix that stain by covering it up with another stain. I fix it by cleaning it. So... My heart has been stained. It only gets resolved when it gets cleansed, purified by the blood of Christ, not by a good work. So don't you dare think for a minute that we're talking about an obedience test that you and I are saved by our good works and our ability to obey God's commandments. That you walk out of here and go, man, I'm just going to really clean this up. I'm really going to take care of this and God's going to love me and God's going to accept me. God already loves you, and He's only going to accept you if you surrender your life to Christ. Because uh, some of you are completely broken in your sin right now. And you're thinking, well, this last week, this last month, a couple years ago, I just absolutely tanked it. So I guess I'm out because I failed the obedience test. No. Instead, when we do sin, we have an advocate for us. That's last week's message. The question is, are you running to the advocate? Are you running to the one who died and rose again for you? When you blow it, when you blow it, are you trying to fix it on your own or are you running to the one who can remedy it? Are you just kind of getting before God saying, God changed me. Just redeem my heart. I lay before you. I'm humbled before you. I have sinned against you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love or are you kind of in your kind of in a proud sort of way just trying to fix this up and take care of it on your own our obedience doesn't save us our obedience to god's word does show that we're born again it does reveal whether or not he truly is king of our hearts as one pastor has said to know him involves a personal relationship that transforms practical behavior to know him involves a personal relationship that transforms Practical behavior. So practical, that's like Monday through Friday. That's day in and day out, moment by moment, seven days a week, 365, practical behavior. If we keep his commandments, if we keep his word, that's the obedience test. So what does he mean by commandments and and the word? Well, does he mean the Ten Commandments? Yes. Does he mean the words written in red in the Gospels? Yes. Does he mean the, the New Testament and all that it has to say? Yes. Cover to cover. So how in the world are we going to sum all of that up? Well, thankfully, Jesus already did. When asked by a religious leader to sum up all the laws and commands of the Bible, Jesus summed them up this way, Matthew 22, 37 through 39. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus summed up all the commands with this. Love God. And love others. So, are our actions and attitudes loving God? Are they loving others? See, sin is not necessarily just doing wrong things, it's also not doing the right things. Like, love your enemy, bless those who persecute you, take care of the orphan, love the poor. Mmm, that would cause me to have to change. We can't just reduce obedience to avoiding sins. Like, well, I avoid sexual immorality. I avoid filthy language. I avoid addiction. I avoid greed and think that we're good and think that we're still not have fallen short of the grace and glory of God. Loving God and loving others is so much more than a game of avoidance or where we compare ourselves to one another and say, man, I'm smoking that person. I mean, they are jacked up and not me. When we've forgotten that, again, God's word says we've all fallen short. We're all in desperate need of God's grace. Jesus, again, challenges us with the obedience test that is so far reaching beyond just social taboos. Do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? Old Testament, with all your strength you and I love our neighbor as ourselves? Are we allowing the word of God to be the authority over all of our lives? Even the areas that we don't want to surrender. I'm challenged continually by the tone of Psalm 119, which really elevates the word in my heart. If I ever see this kind of hesitation to um, neglect the word, or kind of run back to Psalm 119 to remind me of the goodness of God's Word and the the tone and the the approach of the author of those words. I'd encourage you to read it this week. I mean, take note of the the writer of those, of the words and the humble posture they have uh, toward the Word. See, one implication of this call to keep and obey God's commandments is that we, in order to do that, we must know the Word. We must be on a regular basis opening it up and allowing it to read us, allowing His Word to be the authority over our lives, allowing it to change us, as Second Timothy 3.16 calls us, to. that the Word of God is going to encourage, and it's going to rebuke, it's going to correct, it's going to train, it's going to teach us. We must allow it to do that. See, some of us hear the words obedience, authority, commands, and we immediately equate that to words such as burden, weight, affliction, slavery, I mean, you didn't get up to going, obedience, authority, commands, yes. It, the, you kind of imagine that God is this grade school teacher that's just out to get you, out to yell at you every time you, you screw up. Listen to me, God's word is not a blessing. It's not a burden. It's a blessing. I don't know about you, but what I found in my life is that my sin, my sin brings Burden. My sin brings brokenness. My sin and disobedience has never brought blessing. It never has. I couldn't give you one example of that. It's rather brought strife, affliction, weight, slavery, and burden. Read Psalm 32 this week. You'll hear the blessing of forgiveness, but also the weight of unconfessed sin. And when we just try to fix it on our own, the literally, the physical implications of that. Obeying God's Word, while not always easy, I'm not going to lie to you that it's always going to be easy because our pride, your pride, my pride, is frustratingly stubborn. But while not always easy, obedience to God's Word does bring blessing. It leads to stronger, deeper, more authentic, more intimate relationships, not only with Christ, but with one another. The obedience test laid out in 1 John is telling us that we can't claim to know God, but then have this ongoing disobedience or sin pattern in our life. When we do, and we don't really care that we do, it reveals that we don't really know Jesus. And he truly is not king of our hearts. Some of us have a, have a particular sin that, that haunts us. or It's always creeping at the door ready to launch, if you will. And for those who really don't know Jesus, John is saying you really could care less about that sin. In a sense, you're kind of petting it, going, "Ah, oh, I just love that bitterness, though. I'm not going to let that go. I just love that way of life. I, mm, no, I'm going to... You have, you have, Really, your heart has no desire to kind of turn from it. But for those who are in Christ, you're willing to struggle and battle and fight and kill that sin versus being content with it. Your heart is one of repentance, where, where you're agreeing with God about his view of sin and his view of who you are in Christ. That when the sin is crouching, you're preaching the gospel to yourself. That Jesus said it's finished on the cross. It's finished. The power of sin has been broken. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So what's our attitude toward God's word being our authority? John is reminding us that of the message he heard and saw in Jesus. Jesus said something very similar in John 14, 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Verse 5 in 1 John 2 says, Whoever keeps his word is in him. Truly the love of God is perfected. The more we obey God, the greater our love for God grows. The more aware we are of God's love for us, the more prone we are to obey him, because on the cross we see the love of God displayed in such a sacrificial way. Our love for God completes its work when we obey His commands. Our, our obedience does not gain His love, but rather it gives evidence of His love. And the role model for this obedience is who? It's Jesus. If you ever given a question in church, you just answer Jesus because you're safe. You're, prob- you're probably pretty safe. Jesus said in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father or to Him. I always do the things. That kind of statement earns you the title of role model. I I always do what the Father says, role model, right there. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same, same way in which he walked. If we say we abide or live in Christ, we ought to walk as Jesus walked. In a moment of honesty, would you and I say that Jesus is who we are deliberately and intentionally seeking to reflect and grow to become more like When it comes to your private life and how you handle money and and what you deal with temptation and how you love those who don't love you and how you show compassion to another, how you show mercy to the person entangled in sin, how you share your faith with those in your circle of influence, is Jesus our role model? So how in the world do we walk as Jesus walked who obeyed his father 100% of the time? Anybody kind of like, whoa, anybody thinking about that? Same way we walk in life, one step at a time. The question is, where or who are you walking toward? Where are you stepping or who are you stepping toward? Because your direction will determine your destination and you're not going to have it down perfectly this next Sunday. But are you making progress? Is your love for God and others increasing and overflowing compared to a year ago? Have you seen growth in likeness? When you get up tomorrow morning, What's your direction? Who are you walking toward? What's your goal? For those who claim to follow Jesus, it's to walk as Jesus walked. Some of your translations, to live as Jesus lived. To mirror the faith, love, holiness, compassion, mercy, obedience of Jesus. The trajectory of our life springs from the transformation Jesus has done internally. And we do that not in our own strength, but in the grace and power of God. He doesn't set the bar so high and then just say, well, good luck with that one. Instead, he calls us to abide in him, which means we we remain connected to him like branches to a vine. If the branch remains connected to the life in the vine, it produces fruit. This is John 15. The Christian life of walking as Jesus walked is completely impossible. It's completely impossible on your own. But in daily surrender, trusting in his grace, it's possible. And we stay connected to the vine. We stay connected through the word and prayer and face-to-face community with other believers and solitude, getting away from the distractions and the noise in attending this service and singing together, sharing meals together. This is how we stay connected to the vine. I'm grateful that we serve a God who not only calls us to live differently if we claim to know him, but also gives us the power, the grace, the love, the daily mercies in order to actually make progress. His grace is more than sufficient, especially in your weakness. Now, let's look at the relationship test, the love test, if you will, because in context of the obedience test, the command that that John wants to bring our attention to is this love one another. And again, we'll see it elsewhere in this book, but verses 7 through 11 in chapter 2 says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the Is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I love how verse 7 starts. Beloved, or some translations would say, dear friends, loved ones. Again, John is very black and white in this book. In relation to our salvation, there's no gray area. We're either saved or we're not. But you see this thread, if you notice it, you see this thread of grace throughout this whole book, and in a tone of John's words in this letter Listen, loved ones, dear friends, beloved, don't neglect the old and new commandment. Now that seems a bit confusing, the whole old and new commandment. So you're not giving us a new one, but then you you just gave us a new one. That seems odd to me. Well, skipping to verse 11, or skipping to verse 10, I'm sorry, in the context, you see this is about our love for our brothers and sisters. Some say the old commandment means that this commandment to love your neighbor has been around since the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, 18, 13, or third book in the Bible. It says, do not Seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Others would say by old command, John is telling us that as believers, this is one of the commands that we first heard when we began to follow Christ. Love your neighbor, love one another. So it might appear to be old to us because we heard it early on in our faith. But then by emphasizing it as a new commandment, John is stealing a phrase from Jesus, which again is a good move in Christianity. Just just rip it off of Jesus and go with that. John 13, 34, and 35 says, A new command I give you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. By saying it's new, John is also reminding us that, listen, I was a witness to the life of Jesus. I not only heard his message, but I saw it being lived out. I saw it in the person of Christ, and he gave us a picture of what loving one another looks like. He brought new meaning to it. And Jesus loved the social outcasts, the marginalized, the beaten up, the lame, the broken, the thieves, the prostitutes, the sexually immoral, the proud, the addicted, the annoying disciples, the hurtful, the vindictive, the rebellious, the self-righteous, the powerful. To walk as Jesus walked means we love as Jesus loved. And here John is reminding us that if we claim to know Christ, if if He is who we say we are following, then here specifically we must love one another. Not just love, love those yet to be reached with the good news, but love one another, brothers and sisters in the family of God, dedicated to one another. And as Jesus said in John 13, one way the world can actually tell we love Jesus and we're his disciples and that's who we're following is when we love one another. If you're here and you, um, and you have siblings, brothers or sisters, you, you're a student in here, you're an adult in here, you grew up with siblings, uh, go ahead and raise your hand if you have siblings, okay? Keep them up. Work the deltoids for a minute. Um, now, I want you to be really honest. This is the house of God, so, you know, don't Don't be lying. Um, I want you to lower your hand only if you never had a fight. I mean, keep your hands up. If you only, if you never had a fight or a disagreement or a squabble with your siblings, whether currently or when you were a kid, if you walk through and you were you were just spotless and your relationship with one another was 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 always flawless, I want you to lower your hand. Hey, I don't think any of you are liars. If you are, the truth is not in you, but I don't think anybody... Um, just reading the Bible. Um, nobody lowered their hands, right? You can put them down now. <coughs> Siblings in the, in the same blood family will not always rise up and call one another blessed and call one another, just, I love you. They will not always be prone to humble themselves. Oh, you want the bathroom first? That's fine. I'll pray for you while you're in there and it's fine. <laughs> Oh, you want to eat first? That's fine. I, I'm not hungry. You go first. It's not going to happen, is it? Oh, you want, you want that for supper? That's fine. I don't really like that, but I'll choose to eat it because, because I want to serve you and I'll put you first. It didn't happen, does it? Maybe it does and you need to write a book if it does. <laughs> and I'll sit down and listen to you. No, what typically happens, and it probably happened to some of you this morning, you won't have to raise your hand, but Stop touching each other. <laughs> Would you just leave him or her alone? Keep your hands to yourself. Maybe it happened on your way here. And then you, then you praise God and act like that wasn't an issue. I mean, some of us, we, we experienced this this morning. We experienced this days ago. The exact same thing can happen in the spiritual family in God's family that we've been adopted into, we've been brought into by what? Grace. Not by our works, not because we're awesome, but because of grace. That's the only reason we're here. The only reason we got adopted, grace. So why do we see repeatedly in 1 John and elsewhere in the Bible, God's word calling us to love one another? One reason is because our sin nature, our personality differences, our bents theologically, our varied backgrounds and experiences, all of that, if left unchecked to God, can and will lead to conflict and disagreement. Friendly fire can and will happen, not only in your blood family, but in the spiritual God's grace, adopted, brought in, reconciled, orphaned, no, 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 come here, within that family. Listen to me, church one another, that particular sibling in the family of God, whether here in this church or some of the local church, big C church, that, 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 that person is not the enemy. We have one spiritual enemy. He's not flesh and bones. He's the devil. We have one spiritual enemy, and it's not one another. We've often told our kids sometimes, listen, you're on the same team, you know, when, we, when they don't just pray for one another and serve the other person. We stopped it too. so some of you just have like a spider web of conflict in your family. <laughs> we kept it man, you know, like man-to-man defense instead of zone. Um, but we also tell, often tell them, like, you stand back-to-back to one another. You, you defend one another. You're not bayonets readied, let's go. The enemy's goal is always to steal, kill, and destroy, to bring division, strife, to sow seeds of resentment, bitterness, and discord. And when that happens, God is not glorified. God is not glorified. The devil is winning because our testimony to this watching world is hindered and hurt. This is one of the litmus tests for our faith. Do we love one another? Do we have great affection for one another in the family of God? Is our love for one another... Patient, kind, sacrificial, generous, selfless, quick to listen, bearing with one another. Romans 12, 9 through 21 lays out for us this beautiful picture of what love and the family, family of God looks like. And you're going to look at it in community group. I encourage you to look at it on your own. Romans 12, 9 through 21. Verse 9 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. John is telling us we can't claim to know God but then turn around and hate our brother And sister, if we do, it's clear we've never experienced the love of God through Jesus because after having such shown, having just experienced and been shown, lavished upon such amazing, extravagant love, how in the world could we turn around then and show and not show such generous love to a fellow brother or sister in the family? Again, very black and white, love, hate in this instance. What's the word hate mean? Besides the basics, basics of trying to harm another or um, wishing harm upon someone, the one that rings true for me is, is that hate can be defined as cold indifference. Now, that hits home to my heart. I don't know about yours cold indifference. Who in the family of God are you cold and indifferent to? Who, if suffering came their way, you wouldn't be upset? where you might have the secret kind of satisfaction in another person's demise. Where is there indifference in your heart? Because where you find it, you find sin. You find the root of sin, sin that needs to be killed, repented of, not coddled and nursed and justified. John is zeroing in on our relationships with one another because we can't love one another and hear If we're unwilling to do that here, we can't go out and love others out there. We can't skip over the great commandment to love one another. If all the world sees is fellow Christians fighting with one another, gossiping about and slandering one another, and holding resentment and bitterness toward one another, tell me why in the world an unbeliever would want to join such a family? When they're already thinking, boy, my my blood family puts the fun in dysfunction. Why do I want to? You've been redeemed? You've been reconciled. I mean, you've been brought in because of grace, and I, I don't see that. See, our unity and deep love for one another is a witness to the world, a reflection of who we claim to follow, not o- that, that it not only changes us internally, but outwardly, and how we love one another. And let's just call a spade a spade, okay? Some people are hard to love, right? You've got them. I've got them. Raise your hand if you've got somebody who's hard to love. All right. If there's a person next to you, just pretend it's somebody at work. Okay? Just, all right? It's really you. Um, if it is, we'll set up counseling. We can talk about that another day. Not here. Um, so we've all got them. And you and I are them. Raise your hand if you're difficult to love. Hopefully, I can't count you. I'm not that good. But hopefully, the same amount of hands went up. You and I are also the ones who were hard to love. Not just them, but us. Can we be sober-minded enough to admit that? Can we be humble enough to be like, man, I'm difficult to love. I can be. I'll do it from the stage on a podcast. I have these quirks, these things, and many of you know them, and many of you love me in spite of them. By the grace of God, you just try to love me. Thank you. You have to work with me. You have to serve with me. You have to live with me. I don't know. I'm not always easy to love. Loving people who are easy to love is easy because it doesn't cause you to change at all. It doesn't cause your heart to have to surrender. Loving people who are difficult to love, yeah, that's difficult. And yet it bears, this is why, because it, it, it bears, when we do that, it bears this great testimony to the world around us. This is one reason among a thousand others why we're called to love one another and be in community with one another in that glorious mess of community. Because in community and in relationships, we love one another and we actually get to flesh this out. Supernatural gospel community happens when we walk with one another and confess sin and ask forgiveness and say, I need help and I can't do this on my own and I'll walk with you through that and that sin, the cross is bigger than that sin and, and I will bear with you through that and there's grace. Grace is bigger than that. No, this is how God's calling you to live. This is supernatural gospel community. I have people in this body who I have confessed my sin to and received grace, who I have sinned against, they've sinned against me, and we've reconciled because the gospel is bigger than my pettiness. And such reconciliation, then is this beautiful testimony to the world. It, that reconciliation shows we've actually been reconciled to a great God. That's the testimony that our horizontal re- reconciliation has. It gives evidence to the fact that we've actually been changed. And as a result, I'm called to live differently. So how do we love those who are difficult to love? Because we all have them. We are them. We remember the gospel. That Jesus loved you and me when we were so unlovable. When we were so hard. When we were so difficult. When we were so proud. You and I can grow to love because of this new commandment has been fulfilled in Jesus. We can't claim to say that the gospel has changed us and yet hold a grudge because the gospel says that God is no longer holding a grudge. He's no longer holding our sin against us, but we've been set free. And don't miss this either. Loving one another starts with those closest to you. Don't miss that. Don't skip over that. So it starts in your marriage with your kids, with your siblings, with your roommate, with your co-workers. We are to love, not hate one another because Christ followers walk in the light, not the dark because the light of the world has come and we are now to reflect the light to those around us, those who we live with, who know all the ugliness of us and to the ends of the earth. It's not just Jerusalem, ends of the earth. Let's just tack it on under your own roof to the ends of the earth. If we claim to abide in or follow Jesus, then we must walk as Jesus walked. Jesus who obeyed His Father in everything. Jesus who loved us when we were stubborn, proud, and indifferent. Praise God that Jesus was not indifferent to my sin or to your sin. Our walk must line up with our talk. Our way of life must align with how we say we actually believe. Crosspoint, I'm so thankful to serve alongside you. I'm so grateful to be in community with you all and in relationship with you. There's no place I'd rather be than here, following Jesus together with you. I see God at work in so many of your lives. I'm so encouraged by it. So may we keep saying yes to his work in our lives to keep growing in our obedience to his commands, to keep growing and increasing in our love for one another and those yet to walk in our doors. May God get all the glory. May May the lives around us in this region and in this world be different because we were first willing to be changed, because we were willing to allow him to be king of our hearts, king of our lives, aligning our walk with our talk. Father, we are grateful for your grace. We've talked about a lot today. But Holy Spirit, you know the the encouragement, the rebuke, the correction, the teaching, the training that needs to be done through these words. So we just trust you in that. I trust you in that. I thank you that your word doesn't return void. I pray as a church that we would honor you and how we obey your commands, that we would be people relying upon your grace daily so that we might walk as you walked, so we might please and obey the Father in everything. And Father, I pray that you would also just remind us that, our, that your grace is enough, your daily mercies are enough to lead us to obey the command to love our brothers and sisters. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's so relevant to our lives, written so long ago but so relevant to here in 2014, to our lives, to our households, to this church, to what you've called us to do as a church. We want to glorify you in everything. So I pray that tomorrow morning, today as we walk out, that our our direction, our destination would be fixed on you, that you would be who we're walking toward. You would be who we're living for. We love you. We are grateful and thankful and humbled that you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a guest, I encourage you to fill out a connection card on your way out. Meet somebody new. God bless. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.